having spent the last couple days in the vault of study and this time fellowshipping with the Lord and endeavoring to understand the passage that I would like to exposit for you this morning, I have to say that I'm excited to be able to finally share what's in my heart. So will you take your Bibles and turn to John 14? And in a few minutes, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 26. I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Triune Provision. What we're going to see here are some of the magnificent provisions that our triune God has given us. And I wanted to focus on this as we close out another year and look forward to a new one. And as we do that, and when we look back to last year, we can say that it was filled with joy as well as sorrow, right? That's how it's always going to be. And as we look forward to the new year, we can also say, well, I have a lot of hope, but I also have some fears. There's some uncertainty. That's inevitable. We all know that life is going to be filled with ups and downs. In fact, Job said, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. I think we can all identify with that. He also said, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Solomon was even more cynical. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? In Ecclesiastes 1. He went on to say, throughout his life, man also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. You can tell he was not a happy camper at that time in his life. But he went on to describe how man can overcome his frustration with the difficulties of life, even sometimes the the, the futility of life by being occupied with the good things that God has provided. And he says, for man will not often... Consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And he finally said, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments. Indeed, a proper understanding of God will produce obedience. I like what Chuck Swindoll said about Solomon's ideas and observations. He said they were horizontal musings. Horizontal musings, the bitter, barren, boring side of life seen through disillusioned eyes. But on a few rare occasions, the man breaks out of his cynical syndrome. At those times, his comments contain a remarkable vertical perspective that scrapes away the veneer of empty religion and takes us back to the bedrock of a meaningful relationship with the living Lord. And that is certainly... My desire this morning, that is the goal of what I want to share with you, and that is to help you once again just enjoy the sheer excitement of being in relationship with the living God, the living Lord, and how to understand how the triune Godhead has has given us so many blessings that sometimes we take for granted each member of the Trinity blessing us in unique ways. Let me give you the context to the passage that we have before us before I read it to you. It's the night before Jesus' death. 
And the disciples are deeply troubled about Jesus' words of imminent departure. They're troubled because they now understand that Judas is going to betray him. They're troubled because they know that Peter is going to deny him. Their world is coming apart. However, setting aside the the horrific torture that awaits him, Jesus seeks to comfort his disciples. And if you read in the passages before this, we read how he prepares them for what lay ahead. He, he gave them a new commandment to love one another as he had loved them. He exhorted them to not let their heart be troubled, but to believe in the Son as they believe in the Father. He assured them that he was going to the Father's house so that he would prepare a place for them and come once again and receive them unto himself. He also encouraged them that he was paving the way for them and ultimately for all of us, so that we could eventually go where he is going, because they ultimately knew the way, the truth, and the life, who is Christ, because they knew him. And he also comforted them further by promising them that he would not withdraw these miraculous abilities that he had given them. In fact, he would empower them to do even greater works, referring to evangelism and the power of the gospel that we have available to us to this very day. And then further, he reassured them that whatever they needed to accomplish their work to which he had commissioned them, he would supply all of these things if they asked for them in his name, meaning for his purposes and glory. And here in verses 15 through 26, he continues to console them with some stunning promises of great comfort. Let me begin by reading in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive Because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him, and he will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said. This is so amazing, dear friends. In the foreboding foreboding gloom of 
of that night, Jesus comes to his disciples and he consoles them. They're bewildered, they're depressed, they're confused, they're frightened. And he sets their hearts ablaze with the promise of, of supernatural involvement in their life. And mind you, this applies to each of us as well. He promises and delivers everything that we could possibly need to survive this difficult journey called life. And not to just survive in life, but to actually thrive in it. And I pray that these truths will bring comfort to each of you. I know that a number of you are walking in some dark valleys right now. For over 20 years of pastoral ministry, I can honestly say there has never been a single week that someone has not been in some level of crisis in this church. And right now, it's interesting, I noticed that that I right now have nine people on my urgent prayer request, and about half of them I'm dealing with in crisis situations right now. And so it's a difficult time. It's been a difficult Thanksgiving and Christmas season for a number of people, and that's the way it goes from time to time. And so for all of us, we, we, we may not be there now, but we might be next week, and we certainly will before the year's over, right? And so let's listen very carefully and absorb these great truths, embrace them and celebrate them and live in light of them. So let's examine this section of our Lord's farewell address under three simple categories of promised blessing. Number one, we will see the gift of the indwelling spirit. Secondly, the inward manifestation of the son. And finally, the loving favor of the father. And again, I can think of no better way to close out 2017 and bring in 2018 than by meditating upon these magnificent truths. Jesus begins by saying in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, at first, this may seem like an abrupt shift, but upon closer inspection, we see how this connects so perfectly with everything that he has said earlier. Remember, he's been observing their troubled heart, and he knows that they're disturbed over the prospect of him leaving. It's, it's, it's like their world is falling apart. And Jesus has just commanded them to, to get a hold of themselves and to trust in his person, to trust in his work, and with the exercise of f- such faith to, to know that whatever you ask in my name, verse 13, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And in light of all this, he says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, it's interesting, this is the first time in John's gospel where Jesus speaks of their love for him. That is, our love for him as well. The Lord wants them to keep trusting in him, to pray for his kingdom, and to pray for his purposes and glory. And in this context, we see how our love for Christ is the fuel of our faith. It is the ultimate goal of every prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. 1 John 3 and verse 22, we read, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So, folks, this is what he's saying. Men, I know you are profoundly distressed over my imminent departure. 
I can see that in your faces. I hear it in your voices. I know your heart. And I've demonstrated my love to you in many ways. I have washed your feet. I have cared for you. But now I wish to speak to you about your love for me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which, by the way, included the new commandment that he had given them in chapter 13, verse 34, that you love one another. In 1 John 5, verse 2, we read, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The commandments Jesus refers to here in verse 15 encompass all of the full revelation of the Father's will in Scripture. And every person that has ever been born again and made a new creature in Christ will characterize these things in their life. They will manifest a life of humble, humble, joyful submission to the will of God. We know that obedience is not the cause of salvation, but it is certainly the result of it. Paul said, by the works of the law, no man will be justified in God's sight. So it's not our works that justify us, but we see that when we are justified, when we are born again, we see this new creature begin to live in ways that are obedient to the Lord. So keeping his commandments is the surest way to validate the claim of genuine saving faith in Christ. But Jesus knew that his disciples would need supernatural help to do this. You can't do it on your own. So he's going to ask the Father to send a helper to help them. That's where he's going with all of this. Now think about it. You know, honoring the Lord in our life with with joyful obedience... It, it is hard, isn't it? Of course it is. And you know, sometimes it's, it's really hard for us to love one another. I know Nancy struggles with that with me at times, believe it or not. Of course it is hard. In fact, I was thinking of one man, oh, it's probably been five or six years ago. Uh, this is kind of a paraphrase, but th- this brother told me this in, in the church. Uh, he's not here anymore, by the way, so I'm not going to embarrass him. Um, He said, essentially, I don't want to be a part, pastor, I don't want to be part of small groups and really get to know other believers. I've been burned too many times. He said, I don't mind superficial relationships because they work best. Relationships with other believers work well until you really get to know each other. Now, that's a very cynical view, but at some level, he's right. You know, if you just live superficially, well, just kind of get along, right? But when you really begin to love each other and know each other and serve each other, it can be difficult. Like the old adage, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, now that's another story. So here is the first comforting promise of blessing. The Lord is setting aside what he is about to face, and he wants to console them. He wants to console us. He wants to bless us. And the first thing that he speaks about is the gift of the indwelling spirit. 
Notice again, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Now, another helper implies they already had one in Jesus, right? And the term another, alos, in the original language is a term that refers to another of the same kind. Not another of a different kind, but another of the same kind. Another paraclete, one who comes alongside, who is exactly like Jesus. One who will come alongside just like Jesus to strengthen, to encourage, to teach, and so forth. Also, in in secular Greek, it's interesting to know that this particular term uh, carried the idea of an advocate or a a representative or a, a mediator, one who would represent someone else in a court of law. And in 1 John 2, 1, we know that Jesus is called our advocate. advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, one who speaks in our defense. So Jesus even now is in the courts of heaven advocating on our behalf. And even during his, his earthly ministry, he had the role of a paraclete, one who would come alongside. Imagine what that would have been like to have known Jesus and walked with him and talked with him. Someday we will know, right? But now Jesus makes this stunning promise about this provision of another supernatural helper. Well, who is it? Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth. In other words, this helper is going to communicate the truth both of the incarnate and the written word of who Jesus is and the word that he has proclaimed, the word, the scriptures. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And a little later, he will declare to the Father, thy word is truth. And so he is also the spirit of the written word, because he is the one that moved upon men to write it. Second Peter 1.21, remember? And he also illumines the minds of believers so that we can understand it and apply it, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15. So child of God, don't miss this here. This is so exciting. Were it not for the Spirit, where would we be? Beloved, this is the Spirit of God who dwells within us. This was what Jesus promised and delivered. This is the supernatural enabling power that we have to not only do the promised greater works in the realm of evangelism that Jesus talked about, but also the enabling power to really love Christ, to really love one another, to be able to keep his commandments. But notice what else Jesus says. He promises the provision of the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. It doesn't say that they refuse to receive, receive. they won't receive, but they cannot receive. Why? Because it does not behold him or know him. The world, of course, the cosmos in the original language, which speaks of of the moral order that is in rebellion to God, controlled ultimately by Satan. They cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
This is so true, is it not? The world is thoroughly materialistic. It scoffs at anything it cannot see. Indeed, it laughs at the idea of the spirit of truth. I've been in high academia and brought some of these things up, and you cannot imagine the instant hostility, the instant guffawing of people when you speak about these things. That is the world. And so the idea of the spirit of truth replacing the physical presence of Jesus is ridiculous to the world. They cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. We know that the world is, is opposed to the Father. We read about that in 1 John two sixteen, In 1 John five nineteen. we read how the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. We know that he is a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies. Later in chapter 16, in verse 7, we read that the Spirit is the helper. In verse 8, that he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. By the way, were that not the case, we wouldn't be sitting here today. He convicted us of sin, of righteousness that we do not have, and of judgment that awaits us unless we come to Christ. And also, in verse 13 of chapter 16, he's called the spirit of truth that will guide you into all truth. When I was meditating upon this passage, my mind went to some of the things that I've been reading of late. I'm fascinated with the history of great revivals that have occurred in the past. And my heart is burdened that that will happen, even here at Calvary Bible Church and in our community and in our country. But when you read about those great revivals that broke out where my ancestors are from, in Scotland and Wales and Ireland and England, and also in colonial America in the mid-1700s, what is fascinating is without exception, they were always a surprise. They weren't scheduled between August 17 and August 24. All right. They were always a surprise and they were always a supernatural work of the spirit, a great awakening that somehow moved across congregations and moved across communities. Times of of intervention where the Holy Spirit would would sweep over numerous churches and 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 spread to entire communities with massive numbers of conversions. And while there is no formula that that you can find in any of this, there are some threads of commonality. And the threads of commonality are basically this. They occurred as the result of the fervent prayer of God's people. They also occurred in the context of active faith where people believed that the Spirit of God could do these great things. And they also can occurred in the context of expositional preaching of the Word of God and also in the context of churches that had a robust, reformed soteriology. In other words, they were Calvinists. One such man was Samuel Davies, a Presbyterian minister who ministered in Chester County, Pennsylvania. He later became the the fourth president of Princeton University. And while preaching in Virginia in 1757, 
This dear pastor said this, quote, About 16 years ago in the northern colonies, when all religious concern was much out of fashion and the generality lay in a dead sleep in sin, having at best but the form of godliness, but nothing of the power, when the country was in peace and prosperity, free from the calamities of war and epidemical sickness, when, in short, there was no extraordinary calls to repentance, suddenly a deep general concern about eternal things spread through the country. Sinners started out of their slumbers, broke off from their vices, began to cry out, what shall we do to be saved? And made it the great business of their life to prepare for the world to come. Then the gospel seemed almighty and carried all before it. It pierced the very hearts of men with an irresistible power. I've seen thousands at once melted down under it, all eager to hear as for life and hardly a dry eye to be seen among them. Many have since backslidden, and all their religion has come to nothing or dwindled away into formality. But, blessed be God, thousands still remain shining monuments of the power of divine grace in that glorious day. End quote. Amazing testimony. Beloved, know this. Revivals are never raised up by men. They are always brought down by God. And that's what we want to pray for here at Calvary Bible Church, that it will begin in your heart and in mine and in this church and in this community, believing that God can do wondrous things because of the Holy Spirit that he has given us. Again, in verse 17, this is the result of the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. Why? Because he abides with you. Present tense, he abides with you and will be in you. Now, he was already present with the disciples in a general sense, as he was with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament believers. But remember, later on the day of Pentecost, he came upon them permanently. He came upon them personally and intimately. He took up residence within them as he has done in every believer ever since. So some people will ask, well, why are we commanded then to be filled with the Spirit if he's already within us? Well, the answer is because we tend to be controlled by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. The Spirit is there, but we prefer our flesh over him. So this command is to live continually under the influence of the Spirit of God as he has revealed himself in his word, pursuing holiness of life, confessing our sin, forsaking our sin, dying to self, casting ourselves upon him in utter dependency for all things. Ian Murray writes, quote, The command to be filled with the Spirit is for the receiving of new measures of the Spirit's grace and influence. The Spirit is not a static gift, but a living person. There is a sovereignty and mystery about His work, far more than we can understand. But Christ deliberately connects the giving of the Spirit to prayer. Then He quotes Luke eleven thirteen: How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Beloved, may we be faithful in asking him. 
And let us rejoice with what is revealed at the end of verse 17. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Folks, this is why we love God. Do you realize that? This is why we love him. God has saved us that he might inhabit us so that by the power of the Spirit he might conform us into the likeness of Christ and in the context of that, love him supremely. Because he first loved us, we love him. And now the Spirit inhabits us. Romans 5, 5, it is the Spirit of God who pours out within our hearts the love of God. In other words, it's the Spirit of God that gives us a subjective awareness of that which is objective reality, and that is that God loves us. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Again, think about this. What a magnificent promise this is to these disciples who are so confused, so burdened, so bewildered. Love always profound. Proceeds, precedes cheerful obedience, folks. And that's the love that the Spirit of God gives us. And I might add, parenthetically here, if, if, if God's command to love him supremely and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, if those things are, are simply not a priority in your life, if it's just kind of meaningless theological talk, you're probably not a disciple of Christ. If you have no desire to know the word of God or to know the will of God, I don't care how religious you are, don't say that you love someone that you don't want to know or serve. If you have no yearning to know Christ, to somehow experience more of his presence in your life, if you do not find in Christ your greatest joy and your greatest satisfaction. If he is not the longing of your heart, there is something wrong with your faith. You probably do not really love God. Love for God is what animates our hearts to faithful service, to happy submission to his will and to his word. John MacArthur said this, the power of Christian living is entirely from the Holy Spirit just as the power of salvation is entirely in Jesus Christ. But both in the justifying work of Christ and in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, man's will is active and commitment is called for. The Christian is not to sit on the sidelines, as it were, and simply watch the Holy Spirit do battle for him. He is called to consider himself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus to refuse to let sin reign in his mortal body, to resist presenting them as instruments of righteousness to God. So as believers, we must be committed to going where the Spirit guides us, surrendering ourselves to his will. And if we violate the command to walk by the Spirit, what happens? We end up walking by the flesh, and all kinds of problems ensue. To walk by the Spirit requires our willingness to submit to all that He is as He resides within us, as He illumines our minds, as He activates our will and empowers us to obey Him. 
And so we must continually be laying aside the old self, putting on the new self, not out of duty, but out of desire. And again, folks, all of that is because of the power and certainly the gift of the indwelling spirit. So not only did Jesus promise to provide the gift of the spirit to comfort them, but also, secondly, the inward manifestation of the son. This is so fascinating to me. Notice verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is such a tender, uh, compassionate promise, one that, that avails to each of us. Even as a loving father would not abandon his, his helpless children to, to some wicked and, and violent world, the, the Lord here promises to come to you, which he did. And we know he came to them first physically, immediately after the resurrection, right? But his promise reaches far beyond the the 40 days of his post-resurrection ministry. He came to them and he comes to us, dear friends, through his union with the Holy Spirit who who was eventually poured out at Pentecost and who indwells every believer at the moment they are born again. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the Lord Jesus abides with us, how? Through his Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, Christ came. That promise was fulfilled. Though invisible, This very moment, dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ resides within us. In fact, the entire triune Godhead dwells within us. Yet another mystery of the unity of the triune Godhead beyond our ability to understand. It is the Spirit who reveals Christ. It is the Spirit who exalts Christ. It is the Spirit who applies the merits of Christ to our hearts. It is the Spirit who causes us to experience His love and to love Him in return and to obey His commandments. Did not the prophet Isaiah say that they shall call His name Emmanuel? God with us. So what a precious promise this is. I will come to you. And for this reason, he later said, to all that were looking on at his ascension back into glory. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Oh, child of God, let this sink in. This is so profound. It is so precious. As twice-born saints, we presently have available to us the inward manifestation of the Son of God through the Spirit. Absolutely astounding. What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? He said, Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. This is the glorious mystery that, that Paul preached. Remember in Colossians 1, 27, 
He preached among the Gentiles this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Astounding. Folks, if you want to see Jesus, read his word. You will see him. The spirit of God will reveal him to you. You will hear him. Christ will draw near to you. If you want to commune with him, get on your knees in prayer. Not that you have to be on your knees, but you understand the imagery. And he will come to you. He will come to you in very special ways. And we need to rest in this confidence that we have in his promise to never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews 13, 5 and so many other passages. Jesus went on to say in verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. And in the 40 days after his, his resurrection, there's no indication in Scripture that he appeared to anyone other than his disciples. And how sad, think about this, the world's last sighting of the Son of God was him hanging on a Roman cross. So disfigured because of the torture that he had endured. We read in Scripture that he didn't even look human. You, you couldn't recognize him as human at that point. And because the world does not love him, because they prefer darkness over in light rather than light, they walk in the futility of their minds, they walk in unbelief, they cannot enjoy the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, and therefore they cannot see Jesus for who he is, apart from the Spirit's work of regeneration. So they have no means to enjoy the presence of the Son of God within them. Thus his solemn statement, the world will no longer see me. You see, folks, all the world sees is themselves. They live for themselves. And the best they can do on New Year's Eve is party, get stoned, And when the ball drops in Times Square or, what is it, the note drops in Nashville, I think it's what it is, a note in Nashville, they will join a massive choir of of slobbering drunks living in rebellion to the God of glory, and they will sing the old Scottish poem, Auld Lang Syne, which means for the sake of old times. How tragic. While the saints sing, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. Folks, the difference is so startling that it can only be attributed to a supernatural work of God. Again, in verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. But we also know that the world will eventually see him when he returns in fierce judgment. Jesus tells us in Revelation 1 and verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 7 and following, the Apostle Paul says, When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, He's going to be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the world will see him one day, the unredeemed world. 
those who refuse to believe in him, they will stand before him one day in judgment when his eyes are a flame of fire, as the scriptures tell us, at the great white throne judgment. No longer will they see a suffering Savior hanging on a cross. They will see the King of kings and Lord of lords seated upon his sovereign throne, judging the wicked. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which I have prepared for the devil and his angels. According to 2 Thessalonians 1.9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But in verse 19, notice the difference. He says, but you will see me. How so? Why? Because I live. You will live also. Yes, they saw him after the resurrection, but they continued to see him through the eyes of faith, even after he had ascended into heaven. They, they continued to see him, as we all do, through the revelation of the Spirit of God. And the same is true for us today. And one day we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall what? See him just as he is. What an amazing promise. One day our faith will turn to sight. In fact, John tells us in Revelation 22, 4, that we shall see his face. Let that sink in for a while. Verse 19, because I live, you will live also. In other words, because of Christ, because of the work of the the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, we, we are alive in him, we are united to him, we are in Christ. He abides in us. He is the source of our spiritual life, our eternal life. And if Christ is in you, Romans 8.10, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And as I read earlier, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Folks, this is again so staggering to me, and I hope it is to you. We exist in him and he in us spiritually. Not physically, that day is coming. Christ came to earth not only to pay the penalty for our sin, but to establish this this intimate, loving, eternal union with us, whereby we become one with him. Galatians 3.28, we are all one in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit helps us grasp this unfathomable mystery by describing it through various figures. You will recall in, in Romans 7.4, it is said that we are married to Christ. We are married to Christ. You get the union there? You see that? Ephesians 5, we, there's the description of, of the bride and the groom. Jesus is the bride, I mean the, the groom, and we are the bride. We belong to him in this intimate spiritual oneness of relationship, and everything that belongs to him belongs to us. 
And because of this, he will one day present to himself the church, Ephesians 5.27, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. We also see it in John 15 and the figure of the vine and the branches. That in that picture, we see that that he is this life-giving vine. So there's this organic bond that we have with Christ. We, we have a likeness in nature. We receive from him the impartation of life so that we can not just live but bear fruit. And because of him, we have the ability to bear spiritual fruit. In John 6, there's the figure of the body and food. We have life by partaking of Christ, even as Christ had life by partaking of the Father. In Ephesians 1, there's the figure of the head and the body. And the body of Christ, pictured in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, where we read, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So you see the union there in that amazing spiritual organism of the body of Christ. And the, I mean, think about it again. We, we cannot function outside of the body as an independent organ. We are all part of this body. And when we are, we respond to the head of the body, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And together we therefore serve his purposes. And as we look at scripture, we see that because of our union with Christ, There is no condemnation because we are in Christ, right? In Christ, we are free from the law. We possess the righteousness of God in Christ, the scriptures tell us. We are complete in him. And the dead in Christ shall rise. And on and on it goes. Great way to end the old year and bring in the new, isn't it? Beloved, this is a supernatural union that was authored by God himself. This is a living union by which Christ's life becomes our life. And he does not work in us from the outside, but from the inside. An amazing thought. The inside where he dwells, where he abides. And this is an indissoluble union that can can never be severed. And certainly this is a... A a mysterious union. It has no parallel in anything that we know of in life. There's no analogy in human experience. In fact, Paul speaks of this, as I said earlier, as the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Folks, literally... Our union with Christ is the basis of salvation. It's the source of all of the blessings that are ours. You cannot bypass the Lord Jesus Christ and come to God. There's no other way. And you cannot find spiritual blessing apart from being in Christ. These are all just such central truths to the gospel that I'm rehearsing for you. Well, I must move on quickly. Next, Jesus says in verse 20, In that day, referring to in the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. 
And indeed, we know when the Spirit came upon them, he began to guide them into all truth. A lot of these things were confusing to them at that time, including this, this glorious union between the Father and, and the Son, which is, which is the pattern for the spiritual relationship that every believer enjoys with Christ. And then in verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We know the Father loved the Son because of his obedience. And likewise, he loves the believer who is united to the Son and who obeys his commandments. So Jesus promises these astounding blessings to his disciples. Once again, knowing what awaited him. And these apply to all of us. The promise of the gift of the indwelling spirit, the promise of the inward manifestation of the Son, and finally the loving favor of the Father. Once again, this is the proof of genuine discipleship. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, keeps them. That denotes a sincere yearning of the heart to constantly keep the precepts of God as we understand them. He says, this is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. It's interesting, isn't it? The Father's love both precedes and follows our love for him. His love animates our heart's desire to to keep Christ's commandments and And then the Father loves us in return. It all works together. We love and obey Jesus, and he loves us, and exactly the same way he loves and obeys his Father, and the Father loves him, and so forth. But what's fascinating, even though the Father and the Son are and will forever be two distinct divine persons, now I'm getting ready to blow your mind here, all right? So hang on, because I don't understand this either. I'm just telling you what what the scriptures tell us. Even though the Father and the Son are and will forever be two distinct persons, in reality, the two are one and the same. For this reason, in Romans 8.39, Paul speaks of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and on and on it goes. Now notice what Jesus adds the end of verse 21, and I too will love him and will disclose myself to him. Once again, the son discloses or manifests himself to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, I knew somebody was going to ask this, right? When, you're think, when you think about this whole scene with the disciples, they're confused. He's getting ready to go away, and they, they thought for sure he was going to whoop up on Rome and bring in the kingdom, and all this great stuff was going to happen. And what, what's this dying stuff? And Judas is going to betray you. And, and, and Peter, you're going to, what's going on here? So Judas says, by the way, this is not Iscariot. You know, I can see Judas now. He raises his hand, says to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? How, how, how can you set up your kingdom now and be on your throne and we're the only ones going to see it, and the rest of the world's not going to... That, that, what, what's going on here? That's a fair question. 
Remember, Judas, like the others, were confused about the kingdom. They could not reconcile in their minds how Jesus would establish a a glorious kingdom and not somehow disclose himself to the world. You see, the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom will one day stun the world with inexpressible grandeur grandeur and self-disclosure. But that's not what he's describing here yet. So Judas is saying, how is it that you're going to do this? Well, in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he's going to explain this in detail as the gospel records reveal. And then they will understand it as, as we do when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. But for now, what Jesus is wanting them to see concerning this disclosure of himself, this theophany, this manifestation that he's referring to. He wants them to see that this disclosure is the one that will be displayed in their hearts as a result of their obedience to him. That's why he says in verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come. There's the triune Godhead. We will come to him and make our abode with him. In other words, the Father and the Son will manifest themselves to the believer through the Spirit. And in that disclosure, we find our greatest joy, our greatest delight. But such a disclosure isn't possible for those who reject Jesus. Notice verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then as if to say, I I know, guys, this is all confusing to you. I I understand that. I know you're going to need much more instruction. So here's what he says in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This was basically a promise to the disciples for the divine inspiration that would soon be theirs. Think about it. The supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit would come upon them so that they would be able to write the inerrant, inspired, infallible, all-sufficient, authoritative Word of God in the New Testament. So these were magnificent promises, provisions, blessings of great comfort, but they didn't experience the fullness of all of that until the Holy Spirit later came on them and brought to remembrance all that Jesus said. Don't Wouldn't it be fun to be able to just look back and see the light bulb come on later on and say, yeah, now I understand. Remember when Jesus said, yeah, oh, now I get it. So I think I'm going to write Romans, you know, or whatever. So because of the power of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Son, and the loving favor of the Father came upon these men and... According to Acts 17, 6, they turned the world upside down. Absolutely astounding. Dear saints, 
the same power, the same presence, the same favor, the same supernatural blessings belong to each of us. The question is, what will you do with them? First of all, I hope you know Christ. I hope you've repented of your sins and asked Jesus to save you, knowing that he is the only way that you can ever enter into the presence of a holy God by placing your faith in what he did on the cross for all who would believe in him. And if you haven't done that, you need to do that today before it's too late. But for those of us that know these things, what are we going to do with them in this coming year? Are we just going to continue to live for ourselves? I mean, really, you go to work, you're tired, you fight the traffic, you go home, eat a little supper while you're watching TV, you relax over the weekends, you cheer your favorite team, you have a couple weeks vacation, maybe three weeks of vacation a year, and you do this cycle over and over again, and then you get kind of old and sick, and you retire, you get old and feeble, and you die. I mean, folks, you've got to have something to live for. And what we live for is the gospel because of what God has given to us. Triune provision. Beloved, don't waste your life. It is so short. Don't miss the opportunities that you have for serving the Lord. Don't forfeit blessing in your life because you're living for yourself. And certainly don't forfeit eternal rewards. I hope that we will all be able to say, with Paul at the close of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May we all rejoice in these great truths and live consistently with them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. These things are beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but what you have revealed, we know we can understand because of your spirit. And we know that we can live them out in a way that is meaningful and powerful, that brings not only great joy to us, but more importantly, great glory to you. So I commit these truths to the power of your spirit to do with them what you will with all who have heard. And for those that do not know you, Lord, I pray that you will break their heart that you will cause them to genuinely come to saving faith in the living Christ and be born again this very day. We thank you for the last year. We look forward to the new year. We commit it all to you. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.